Pennsylvania's COVID-19 shutdown order found by the court to violate free speech. Professor Eugene Volokh from the UCLA School of Law and the Volokh Conspiracy Blog joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you. We have a terrific show today. We'll be talking about a recent decision from the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Pennsylvania that found Pennsylvania's COVID-19 shutdown order violated free speech. But before we get to that, we need to thank our sponsor, Clea, who's having an online event. From October 13th to 16th, we're excited to be attending the 2020 Clio Cloud Conference. This one-of-a-kind legal tech event is taking place online and features world-class speakers like Ben Crump, Seth Godin, and Angela Duckworth. There will be interactive networking, CLE credits, and legendary social events. To learn more and to join us, go to cleocloudconference.com. And now back to our topic, Pennsylvania's COVID-19 order violating free speech. And to walk us through all of that, we once again welcome to the network, first time on this show, Professor Eugene Volokh. Welcome back, sir. Great to be on. Thanks very much for having me. Absolutely. It's been too long, so I'm glad to have you back on. Well, let's get to it, Professor. You know, I uh, I read your article. You had it on your blog. It was uh, titled, Federal Court Holds Pennsylvania Shutdown Order Unconstitutional Ban on Public Gatherings. And of course, in that article, you were talking about this recent case, County of Butler versus Wolf. So just for the benefit of our audience, can you just briefly tell us about the facts of that case and what happened? Sure. Uh, So uh, Pennsylvania shutdown order, a limited non-religious gathering. So this wasn't one of those cases that involved challenges to uh, restrictions on church services. Pennsylvania uh, order did not cover church services, but it did limit non-religious gatherings to 25 people for indoor gatherings and 250 people for outdoor gatherings. Uh, That was challenged under the assembly clause, which secures the right of the people peaceably to assemble for political and for other reasons. Uh, And uh, the court said that, yes, indeed, this order violated the assembly clause. It concluded the restrictions were content neutral. It didn't target particular kinds of political gatherings. So therefore, it applied only intermediate scrutiny and not strict scrutiny. But it held the restriction failed the scrutiny uh, because, uh, among other things, they uh, burdened these kinds of political and other such gatherings more than commercial gatherings uh, were burdened. Uh, So it pointed out that, for example, you could have uh, hundreds of people congregating in stores, malls, large restaurants, and other businesses based only on the occupancy limit of the building. And the court said that uh, uh, a similar rule ought to be applied to political gatherings. Professor, you did a great job, uh, you know, laying this out in your in your article. You talked about some precedential value to a case back in 1905. It was called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and in that case, there seemed to be this precedential value that uh, there was sort of this uh, broad hands off deference to state authorities when it came to matters of health and safety. So, could you walk us through a little bit of that deference from that older case, and uh, you know, we'll get into how this particular case, the latest one, uh, the County of Butler versus Wolf straight from that. Sure. So Jacobson v. Massachusetts is a 1905 case which involved a, uh, a mandate of vaccination against smallpox. There was a smallpox epidemic, and uh, there was a requirement that people be vaccinated against smallpox. And the court uh, uh, said that is constitutionally permissible. Uh, it's uh, 
uh, obviously it burdens people's rights. Uh, in 1905, even the court recognized that people had generally a right to bodily integrity, not to have medical treatments performed on them against their will. But the court said that uh, because of the special threat of communicable disease, the government had pretty broad authority to impose restrictions on individual rights, including vaccination mandates. So one way of reading the case is to say, look, the general constitutional rules that apply under ordinary circumstances don't really apply when it comes to uh, communicable disease, uh, that there are special threats that stem from communicable disease. One way of thinking about it is, just with regard to assembly, normally assembly is innocent behavior, especially peaceable assembly, uh, normally, it's not particularly harmful, but it, but epidemics can make it harmful. So the theory of Jacobson, at least one reading of Jacobson, is when it comes to preventing epidemic disease, all the normal constitutional rights are, at the very least, very much reduced in force. And basically, the government can do whatever is plausibly reasonable in trying to fight disease. But the court disagreed with that reading of Jacobson. What it said is, look, Jacobson was a case from an earlier era of constitutional law. Since 1905, the Supreme Court has developed specialized rules, for example, for the Assembly Clause and the rest of the First Amendment. And uh, uh, it's those rules that should apply, those rules that have been developed since, since 1905, rather than this over-century-old precedent. And the court said, of course, those rules have room in them to consider public health matters. So, for example, when the court says that even content-neutral restrictions on speech and assembly are subject to intermediate scrutiny, uh, they are uh, constitutional, that they're narrowly tailored to an important government interest, well, there certainly is an important government interest in preventing disease, and certain restrictions may be narrowly tailored in time of epidemic that wouldn't be under other circumstances. But it's that this more modern approach to constitutional rights that should be used instead of this old 1905 case. Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit. I think it's pretty instructive, and I, and I want to get a, a layman's explanation to those uh, separate tiered levels of scrutiny. But you know, back to the 1905 case, you know, it was a different time, and so just, just from a maybe I don't know if it's a, a necessarily a legal opinion, but would you agree with like 1905 was probably a time where the sentiment against uh, you know government interference wasn't quite as strong, just from a historic point of view. Well, I'm not sure whether one can generalize this way. Certain rights were less protected back then. Certain rights were more protected back then. Certainly, the amount of government interference in ordinary life was probably less. I shouldn't say certainly, but it was probably less uh, than it is today. But it is true that uh, First Amendment protections, protections for speech and assembly, were much less well-developed back then. Uh, the rules were much less formally set up than they are today. Well, that's fascinating and, and uh, you know, great lead off to my uh, follow up there. And so what I wanted to do, Professor Volokh, is talk about those those tiered levels of scrutiny. And and so if we get a layman's explanation, you know, not not all of our listeners are uh, constitutional scholars uh, like yourself and not all of them went to law school and studied constitutional law. So can you walk us through those court created levels of scrutiny that the court uses today? So the rational basis, the intermediate scrutiny and the strict scrutiny. So what I'm about to say is oversimplification, but I hope that it's helpful simplification. There are some kinds of constitutional claims that are judged under so-called rational basis scrutiny, and that basically means the government wins unless there's something that seems extraordinarily broad about a restriction or somehow unfair, but in a very, very clear way. At least that's 
That's the theory. So, for example, the Equal Protection Clause bars states from denying to people the equal protection of the laws. Well, what does that really mean? Uh, as a practical matter, almost all laws involve various kinds of distinctions. You know, statutory rape laws distinguish uh, between people based on age often. There are uh, tax laws distinguish between people based on what kind of occupation they're in or what kind of business transactions uh, they engage in. And uh, uh, generally speaking, the court says for most classifications, equal protection simply requires some rational basis for the government action, which basically means the government can do whatever it wants. Uh, the other extreme is strict scrutiny. A restriction, uh, certain kinds of restrictions are unconstitutional unless they pass strict scrutiny which means they have to be narrowly tailored to a compelling government interest. So returning to equal protection, classifications based on race are generally subject to strict scrutiny. They're almost always unconstitutional, with some debate about things like race-based affirmative action and the like. Although even there, formally at least, uh, they're subject to strict scrutiny, although the court has been a little bit more open to those kinds of race discriminations. Then, uh, likewise, uh, content-based speech restrictions. If the government says, you know, you can't gather in this place in order to express racist views. That's even a viewpoint-based restriction. Or you can't gather there to express political views. That may be a content-based restriction. Those two are often subject to strict scrutiny, almost always. Not always always, but almost always unconstitutional. And intermediate scrutiny is something in the middle. And the theory there is we accept that there are various kinds of restrictions are going to be necessary, but we want to make sure uh, we, as the courts, will insist that those restrictions not be unduly broad. Uh, so one classic example is content-neutral restrictions. Uh, so restrictions that say, for example, you can't make noise uh, or excessive noise in a residential area at night. Those would generally be upheld because there's an important interest in preserving peace and quiet in the nighttime in residential areas. On the other hand, a rule that's equally content neutral that says you cannot use any amplification, uh, sound amplification anywhere in town for any event, any time, whether it's in a residential area or not, whether it's in a park or not, whether it's in the middle of the day or not, you just can't do that because we're super into peace and quiet. Well, that would probably be seen as too broad. Uh, because it restricts too much speech, because it basically prevents political rallies, for example, which require amplification from happening anywhere. So that's the big picture. How does this apply in this kind of situation? Well, generally speaking, restrictions on business, whether or not they are uh, justified by public health, are generally subject to rational basis. Interestingly, here the court ended up striking down certain restrictions on business, saying they're just irrational. But that's a pretty rare thing. Yeah, walk us through that a little bit. So obviously the court went with intermediate scrutiny on this test um, and the state's case failed. So, you know, walk us through, you started before, but walk us through the elements of why the state's interference here failed. Sure. So the court says, look, this is a restriction on an enumerated constitutional right, the right of the people peaceably to assemble. It's not a total ban on that, but still when you limit people to assembling 25 people at a time indoors or 50 people outside, uh, at a time, that's a pretty substantial burden on your ability to assemble uh, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. That's also right there in the assembly clause. Now, then the court asks, is this a content-neutral or content-based restriction? If it were content-based, then it would be presumptively unconstitutional, subject to strict scrutiny, almost clearly forbidden. But the court said, look, this applies to all, at least all non-religious gatherings. That's content-neutral. So we apply intermediate scrutiny. 
but that still requires that the law be narrowly tailored to an important government interest. The court says, well, of course, there's an important government interest in uh, preventing disease, especially deadly disease, but this isn't narrowly tailored because uh, it permits commercial gatherings that are considerably larger, just based uh, on the percentage of occupancy rather than a flat limit like here for these political gatherings. So the court says hundreds of people may congregate in stores, malls, large restaurants, and other businesses based only on the occupancy limit of the building. Well, that's a sign. That's really what, the, at least according to the government, that's really all it takes to adequately protect ourselves against this disease. So why is it that the government is now imposing much harsher limits on people congregating, but for political reasons, in order to exercise their constitutional rights? That's not narrowly tailored, says the well, and to close it out here, Professor Volek, you know, what is your prediction for this case? So from what you were telling us before, it's going to appeal, but uh, who do you think will win on the appeal? Well, um, so it's an interesting question. Uh, generally speaking, most courts uh, uh, that have considered these kinds of restrictions uh, have upheld them, partly sometimes by saying Jacobson is indeed the law, so we just basically defer the government uh, action in this area when it's an attempt to prevent an epidemic or control an epidemic, or because they say even applying intermediate scrutiny, this is narrowly tailored to an important government interest. But some courts have indeed said that one way we can test the constitutionality of restrictions on specifically protected rights, like free exercise of religion or like the right to assemble, is to see if they're being treated worse than other unprotected, constitutionally unprotected activity. There's no constitutional right to go into a restaurant or go into a mall, and yet the government is willing to allow pretty large groups of people in restaurants and malls. So if that's so, then it needs to treat this constitutionally protected right, such as the right to assemble, it needs to treat it at least as well. So you can imagine a court accepting that argument. My guess is probably the court will defer to the judgment uh, of Pennsylvania officials on this. But uh, but at least the district court's decision on this point, the the political gathering point, is a plausible one. It will be interesting to see what the court decides. Yeah, so there's a good argument that the state should win. There's a plausible argument, though, that the district court was right in limiting state power when it comes to restricting constitutionally protected assemblies. We'll see what the Third Circuit decides. All right, I just have one last question for you, Professor Volek. In your article, uh, kind of towards the end as you were closing things out, you mentioned that there might be a stronger strategy for those wishing to challenge Pennsylvania on its shutdown orders. And so in terms of that, what type of argument would you make that you think would be better? Uh, well, uh, so the argument that I mentioned is that uh, a restriction that is sufficiently grave on a right, even a content-neutral restriction, really should be judged not just under intermediate scrutiny, but under strict scrutiny. So uh, let's imagine there was, a, there was a law that banned all gatherings, even let's say outside of an epidemic context, all gatherings in the city, because they were seen as interfering with traffic or interfering with people's uh, enjoyment of local parks if somebody's gathering, even a small gathering in a park. Uh, that would be content neutral, but I think that would be judged under strict scrutiny and not just intermediate scrutiny because it would be seen as too broad, as not leaving open so-called ample alternative channels. That's a separate prong of this test for content neutral restrictions. Uh, so likewise, you could say that a law that bans any kind of really sort of serious large political rallies of the sort that we're used to, where the, it's the very numbers that kind of help make this an important event, that is something that doesn't leave open ample alternative channels 
to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. So therefore, it should be judged under strict scrutiny and not under intermediate scrutiny. Perhaps that's an argument that the challengers will ultimately make on appeal. They're entitled to defend the judgment below using a different argument than the one that the court accepted. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what the Third Circuit says about it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Volk. It was great having you on the air with us again. Uh, very much my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us in your favorite podcasting app. It's really good for the show. And also, we'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com so you can read all about it yourself if you'd like. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 